This is our uh, third week in our City Connected series, and we've had Darren Martin our first week, we've had Dave Witt uh, our second week, and then today we are having Robin Waller. I'm going to grab my chair. We're going to do a little interview with you, but everybody here, why don't you welcome Robin while I grab the chair. There we go. Super. There we go. That, that's, your, that's your smattering of applause that I, you're getting. I'll take what I can get. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So Robin, actually, Robin Waller uh, is a pastor of a church called Lift Church. And I've been pretty excited about the fact of just getting to know Robin. And he and I actually had a chance to, I think we were going to spend about an hour together. It turned into almost two and a half, maybe three hours together. Good, yeah. I didn't even get to see your building. <laughs> yeah, I talk too much. But anyway, I asked too many questions. But part of it is like Robin uh, is running a ministry called Lift Church. And we just want to hear more about Lift Church um, and what Lift Church is doing uh, near us and then across Ontario. But before you get into that, so you're, you're here alone today. I am, yeah. But you are married. I am. And you have kids. Two. Where do you live? Give us... Uh, I live just on the other side of the power lines here on Radford Street. Uh, so uh, I walked over this morning. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So Good for you. We my wife you. is uh, running training for our church this morning. So What's her name? Her, uh, her name is Laura. Okay, very so good. she couldn't be with me. That's good. And how old are your kids? Uh, Kai is five and Silas is three. Okay. Yeah. One of the amazing and interesting things I found when I was talking to Robin was he hasn't had, at least in my, from my perspective, the traditional pathway to ministry. Mm. Is that right? No, not at all. Okay. I know people That's who right. go it's... through Bible college and then yeah. seminary, maybe into ministry that way. Yeah. Uh, I noticed that you had a ring on your little finger, your I baby do. finger. Okay. Yeah. So you're an engineer. Yes. Holy cow. Okay. Give us an idea. How did you... How did you go from engineering to ministry? Yeah, so uh, I helped start our church when I was an engineering student uh, 16 years ago, and uh, I love Jesus, and I love making <laughs> disciples, and um, at a certain point in time, there was an opportunity to uh, step into leadership of our church to take the reins, and uh, I was working as an engineer, and so I just figured, well, we'll do both together, okay. and uh, so I ended up leading a church and working as an engineer. And not that engineers, if any of you are studying engineering, can't be in ministry at all that way, but just wanted to say it's just not typical. If I remember correctly, it was nuclear engineering? Yeah, engineering physics, if uh, there's any Mac grads there in the go. house. Okay. Yeah, that's where you are. Okay, give us a brief interview or, or overview, I mean, of uh, Lift Church. Yeah, so Lift Church is uh, a church that is committed to uh, seeing people know Jesus on university and college campuses uh, everywhere. And so we're sort of uh, one part church, one part missions movement, one part discipleship movement, all smashed together. And so uh, we've got churches on seven university campuses in Southern Ontario and are just always planting more and sending people out. Um, but home base is right here. Uh, we started at McMaster 16 years ago and um, actually just bought uh, a building to serve as a discipleship slash student center just around the corner. Um, on Royal Ave, if across from West End Pub, if anyone knows where that is. Um, so good. What are so, the locations? Which uh, Brock University, mm-hmm. uh, McMaster, obviously York University, mm-hmm. University of Toronto, Mississauga, uh, Guelph University or University of Guelph, University of Waterloo, and Mohawk College. I think I got them all. That's very good. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Okay, so when what are you observing about the spiritual hunger of university students in all these campuses mm-hmm. you're at? Yeah, you know, the, the climate on campuses has changed a lot in the last 10 years, uh, but especially in the last three. 
the, the type of student that we're seeing come in, the demographics are very different. And I think that there's a sense, broadly speaking, in the church world that, you know, people are disinterested in faith, but we're actually observing the opposite. Uh, we have never seen spiritual hunger like we are currently seeing on our campuses. Um, especially amongst international students, but broadly speaking, um, a, a quick story if, if I can tell one. We, we, were, uh, we finally got back to campus. We were actually using the space. Thank you for sharing with us. You gave us a home when we were homeless. So for the first part of the summer, we were in this room right here. Uh, but we're finally back on campus, and last week there was a, uh, a guy that was wandering around campus, not a Christian, no exposure to church, and uh, he was trying to sort his life out. And I don't know like, about you, but I don't wander around university student centers when I'm trying to sort my life out, but that's what this guy was doing. And uh, he couldn't figure it out, so he left the building and uh, felt this overwhelming impression that he needed to come back and connect with us at Lyft. I guess he saw one of our banners and uh, walked in and is like, oh my goodness, this is what I'm looking for. The, the, the answers to, to, to the light to life seem to be actually found in the church. And so he's gone from literally no knowledge of Jesus to uh, fully integrated into our church in a matter of just a couple weeks and, uh, or less than a week. Um, it's incredible. Um, I got 12 guys that I'm discipling out of my house. None of them are Christians. Uh, all of them are first time exploring Jesus. Like it's just like it's everywhere. There's a hunger to figure out what is this life about? So Love it's pretty, it. pretty exciting. Now, I know you're going to tell us more in your talk, mm. um, but just before you do that, those of us that aren't involved in campus ministry or we love our students, we want to love on them, do whatever we can, but what can we learn about what you're doing? And I say that because we're, I feel like a little bit of an outsider wanting you to give us more inside information into all of this. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that we've learned in the last 16 years is that uh, when you call people into something challenging, it's good for them. Mm. Um, and perhaps first and foremost, that serving and calling people to serve is one of the most life-giving gifts that we as the church can give. Uh, Jesus has commissioned us to, to, uh, to serve, but oftentimes we try to entertain people into the church. Mm. And um, what, we're, what we've discovered with university students is they are very savvy um, to our tricks. Uh, you can't trick people into loving Jesus. But if we call them to serve uh, and to give their lives for something bigger than themselves, that that has sticking power. Um, I think partly because it's the Jesus way. Um, and so when we call people to the impossible task of laying their lives down for Jesus, it's the best gift that we can give them. That's good. Good. Okay, we're going to give you a platform to give yeah, us some teaching. Uh, before we do that, I hope that you're enjoying this series, though, because we're really getting different perspective. Just it's quick, but we're getting a different perspective of what the kingdom of God is like. And it's not just about how we do things at Westside or even some of the things we're most comfortable with. And so I just want to encourage you, even on, you know, we're going to see this on YouTube, Robin. Uh, we just want to pass your message along and be blessed. We just want to bless you for all that you're doing as well. So I'm going to pray for you and then give you platform. Okay. Father, thank you so much for just the way that you teach us in so many different ways. And Father, I pray today that you'll give Robin the words 
that you want him to speak to each one of us. And so, Father, I pray that all of us also will have ears and minds and hearts that are open to those things that, uh, that you need us to learn, even for this day. And Father, we think of uh, the many, many students uh, that are uh, connected with the, all these campuses that Robin has, has shared with us, and specifically McMaster. And we just pray, Father, that somehow uh, between Lyft Church and our church and other churches around that many, many of these young people will come to know you as their Savior. And Father, be discipled when we will take uh, responsibility to disciple them well. And so, Lord, right now we just pray and give you this time. We again pray for Rob and pray for his wife, Laura. Pray for his kids. Let, uh, let, uh, we just want to be a blessing to them in your name. Amen. Amen. Bless you, my Amen. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be together. I want to start by, uh, I alluded to the fact that we were using uh, this space for the last few months, and thank you for sharing it with us. Uh, we were quite honestly homeless. The university wouldn't uh, allow us back because of COVID protocol and whatnot, and so it was a real uh, saving grace that we were able to have a space to gather. And, uh, you know, I think over the years, uh, Lyft and Westside have, have often... Um, been sort of two different, the two main churches that have connected with students uh, in in this neighborhood, and uh, I, I think the first thing I want to say is just like we are a team, and we are so excited to see uh, students get connected in at Westside. Um, we don't see that as a threat or a competition. Uh, we are uh, our heart is to see uh, people know Jesus, and I pray that this fall when we see. Uh, tens of thousands of students come back and things return back to normal, that many of them find a home uh, here in this community and grow to love Jesus. And so uh, know that we're, we're laboring towards the same thing, which is the glory of Jesus. And I'm just so grateful that we get to do that together. Um, at the risk of self-promotion, um, but I, I want to just share a couple quick things and then uh, so at least you have an opportunity to hear what we're about broadly. So I brought some books with me. Um, we like writing at Lyft, so I've written quite a bit. So everything I'm going to teach today is written into books. Uh, you can just grab. I brought a few. You can just grab them because um, they're fun. This one's on spiritual discernment, and then this, the other one, the bigger one here uh, called Living Scent, is sort of how we think about discipleship and how we do discipleship at Lyft, and maybe it'd be a blessing to you. Uh, and then the other part is... I alluded to uh, this building that we're doing just on Royal. A lot of people drive by I'm like, what's happening there? It's this crazy construction site. If you want to learn about that, I brought some material on that as well. And that way you can be like, hey, this is what's happening with Lyft. Um, we're not, in that way we're not strangers, we're friends. So these, I'll just leave them up here and anyone that wants one can just grab. Uh, why don't you flip in a Bible, if you can, to Acts chapter 8. And Acts chapter 8 is where I'm going to start things off today in a minute. And, you know, I was praying about what to share and uh, felt like the Lord wanted me kind of just to share the story of what God has done in our church. And my intent in doing this is not so much to tell you this is what you need to do, but to maybe plant a few seeds of ideas that the Lord in His sovereign grace would, would cause to germinate and uh, bear fruit in a unique way here at Westside. And so... I'm just planting seeds, and you guys can decide what to do with it um, out of our story. And so if you're in Acts 8, um, I don't know if it's going to be up on the screen. I can't remember if the guys are going to do it or not. Um, 
We'll be there in just a second. But before I go to Acts 8, um, oh, perfect. If you can see it, say, I see it. Okay, you guys, you guys got to work with me here. If you can read, say, I can read. Okay, good. I was worried there for a moment. Okay, before I go to Acts 8, you guys can, can leave. Actually, can you flip to Matthew 28? I'm testing the production team here. Sorry, guys. Um, okay, so there's this verse in uh, Matthew 28. If you've been around church for more than a minute, you know it. Uh, it says, therefore, go and make, what? Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The Great Commission, right? Like this is the one thing that we have been commanded to do as followers of Jesus. And so far as I know, this instruction, this commandment, this commission that he has given us hasn't been rescinded. Uh, Jesus has not yet returned. And so uh, as far as I'm concerned, this is still our job, making disciples. Is that even really possible? Um, like, how do we do that? What does it mean to make disciples? Do we, sitting here today, really believe that as followers of Jesus, that we individually and collectively have a call to make disciples? And if we do believe we have the call, do we believe that it's possible? Have you considered yourself as a disciple? But more than just a disciple, have you considered yourself as a disciple that makes disciples? We began to wrestle with this question quite a bit as a church um, well, over the last 16 years. Like, what does it mean to, to really make disciples? What does it mean to reproduce disciples? What does it look like to reach all nations? And a passage in Acts 8 came to us a number of years ago that completely rocked our world. I can get it up on the screen. Acts 8, verse 1. Uh, the church has exploded um, in Jerusalem. Things are going really well for the church. But Paul, slash before he was Paul, Saul, uh, has started to persecute the church. And it says, and Saul approved of killing him, him being Stephen in this case. And on that day, a great persecution. Everybody say persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all, everybody say all. If you have a Bible, circle, underline, bold, remember that word all. All except the apostles. So all except the apostles translates to everybody except for the church leaders were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Well, what happened when they scattered? When the disciples, uh, these followers of Jesus, persecution comes on them, they're scattered. Well, if you fast forward to Acts chapter 11, we discovered that these ordinary, unnamed, regular disciples had started reproducing disciples amongst the Greeks and the Gentiles. A lot of times we think it was Paul, this great bastion of theology, that was the first church planter and the one that really brought the gospel to the world. But it wasn't. It was ordinary, unnamed, regular, run-of-the-mill disciples running for their lives that took the gospel to the world. This, this verse is so powerful that it's early to easy to miss. Verse 4 says, 
that those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. The first church planters were not professionals. They weren't theologians. They're people like you and me, just ordinary people that had had an encounter with Jesus. This verse led us to consider like, okay, what does that mean for us as a church? What if what we see in the book of Acts was intended to be normative for the way we think about church planting? You see, what had happened at Lyft was that we had grown uh, after struggling for about seven years to figure out what we were. Uh, we, we started to grow very quickly, and we had uh, been able to attract a crowd sometimes of over 500 people, largely in their 20s. You know, we were, we were young, uh, we were hip, we were attractive, we were kind of like the cool thing in town. But what happened was that we, when we started to have a desire to plant churches in new locations, we realized that our approach was way too resource-intensive. It required a heavy amount of talent. We couldn't take what we were seeing at McMaster and reproduce it into other contexts. And more importantly, what we realized was that although we were really good at gathering a crowd to hear about Jesus, we had an endemic discipleship issue. You see, the, ab the ability to gather a crowd and the ability to make disciples are two very different skills. And I think it's important that we remember that it's the latter. The call to make disciples, that's what Jesus has asked us to do, not necessarily build crowds. And so about five years ago, we said, let's, let's re-envision the way we think about our church where what we see in Acts becomes a normative approach or a normalizing approach. What if we started to view all of our students as future church planters and disciple makers? What if we had this crazy goal? Like imagine this. What if we took any person that had been part of our church for four years or five years or whatever, and we sent them to some random city in the middle of nowhere and left them alone for five years? And then we came back. Would we find a church there? Because that seems to be what happens in the book of Acts, is that ordinary believers run to a place like Antioch without any instruction, without any oversight, without anyone telling them what to do, and a church was planted. Could we see that in our people? Could you see that in yourself? This is the story of my friend Ina. Ina started in our church actually uh, as a Muslim, and she didn't grow up in the church. She became a Christian in our church, was baptized, discipled, learned to read her Bible, learned to teach other people to read their Bibles. And she put up her hand and said, you know what, I think, I think the Lord might have me move to, to York University to start a church there. We said, great, well, off you go. And so Ina moved to York University, set up a job as a, uh, as a wedding photographer slash filmmaker and a real estate agent and started making disciples. She'd wander around campus, introduce herself, start leading people to Jesus, start making disciples. Fast forward a couple years and despite the pandemic, 
there's now a thriving, beautiful church at York University that we planted with zero dollars, zero professionals, zero strategy other than let's send a disciple that loves Jesus to go make disciples. Now, too often I think we think of discipleship from a model or program approach. We think of, okay, we, the, the church institution has a program of discipleship. But this is, this is problematic because it's not what we see in, in, in the scriptures. Like Jesus discipled his disciples by spending time and living with them and traveling with them. And he said, come and, come and join up with me. Come and be with me. And then he sends them to do others. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, he, said with, he says to the church, we didn't just share the gospel with you, we shared our very lives. See, discipleship is not a program, it's a way of life. And I want to share very briefly three values about discipleship that we have learned as a church. Three values that have shaped how we think and how we live, and maybe they'll be helpful to you. The first value is the value of the priesthood of all believers. I'm just kind of curious. Put up your hand if you know what I'm talking about when I say that. Priesthood of all believers. Awesome. Okay, great. Not very many people. That's perfect. So the priesthood of all believers was this idea that basically, um, in some ways, caused the split between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church like 500 years ago. This is church history now. And the idea here is very simple. All Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, have a call to make disciples universally. And that there is no difference between you, if you're a follower of Jesus, and me as a church leader. We are the same. We have the same call to make disciples. Maybe the platform is going to be different. Maybe the approach is going to be different. But that all Christians have a call to make disciples. Now, I don't know a single denomination, church movement, organization, or church that would disagree with this, especially within, within sort of the Protestant world broadly. But it's one thing to give intellectual assent to say, yeah, I'm, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm called to make disciples. It's another thing to say we're going to live it. Do we really believe that everyone is called to make disciples? See, if we're going to be serious about fulfilling the Great Commission, if we're going to honor what Jesus has called us to in Matthew 28, that means that each one of us, every one of us, if we're a follower of Jesus, has a responsibility to make disciples. Everyone. Acts 8, all except the apostles were scattered. I don't hear, hear me wrong. I'm not saying that character and track record and having some theological proficiency is not important. But our starting point when we think about what it means to be Christians has to be an embrace of the call to reproduce disciples. At Lyft, what we've done in order to try to facilitate this is we've broken our church into, uh, not broken, but we've organized our church into about 50, uh, we call them simple churches. They're like our discipleship families. Uh, and we struggle to define simple church because it's like, well, what is it? Is it like a Bible study? Well, it's kind of like we, we study the Bible. Really what a simple church is, is it's a context to make disciples. 
And every simple church leader has a responsibility to raise a new simple church leader, to disciple them and train them up that they would in turn do the same. It's super messy if you can think, okay, how could that possibly go wrong? You can go wrong a lot of ways. Uh, we're trying to, we've deployed about 150 students into leadership roles at a given point in time. You can just imagine how sideways that goes. And then I read my Bible and discover that that's the way the church did it in Acts, in 1 Corinthians, and so forth. So the first part of this call to everyone being, making disciples is that we need to call everyone to mission. The second part of this is that we need to embrace what we call co-vocational ministry as the norm. What's happened often in our thinking is that we think like, okay, it's the professional's job to do church ministry and to, to feed the sheep, and it's the job of the church to come and, and be fed. But if everyone is called to make disciples, that means that each one of us has a responsibility to figure out how to integrate the call to making disciples with the skills and jobs and opportunities that God has given us. Which means that we can't separate church life into the professionals and the non-professionals. So at Lyft, the way this works is that every person in a leadership role in our church has a job like a career job. Our church planters are, uh, we have a PhD students, massage therapists, firefighters, real estate agents, social workers. All of them have jobs and then they make disciples as their primary job. 100% of our church leaders are either full-time employed or co-vocational, meaning they're uh, employed in the church and then also in another job. In fact, we won't even consider someone for a leadership role if they don't have some kind of professional work to bring to the table. For myself, I worked as a software engineer for 10 years at a number of startups. And I didn't even see the church provide a dime of income to my family until we were in our fourth location. Because my leading of the church is not my job. My job is to make disciples. How I fund my family and how that's taken care of, that's almost a, second, a secondary concern. What this means is that most of you will have some kind of employment, right? I hope. A nine to five, a, a seven to seven, like a whatever. But your first call, your first vocation is disciple making, if you're a follower of Jesus. And sometimes I think what we've done in the church is that we've muddled the waters of discipleship and vocation. We've allowed discipleship to become a secondary aspect of our calling while attaching our primary calling to our vocation in our careers. And then I think we've committed another mistake often in church life generally is that we've normalized a standard of living in the church broadly that requires us to get into the rat race of making more and more and more money. We've normalized high debt, high standards of living. And we've allowed the triple threat of consumerism, comfort, and careerism to drive out space in our lives for life-on-life -life discipleship. So we start to live these expensive lives which require us to work, which require us 
which in turn enables us to live more expensive lives, which encourages us to work, which means all of a sudden discipleship and time for, for serving, time for making space for the poor, time for making space for discipleship gets pushed to the margins. When our first call is to ask the question, Jesus, how do I structure my life to make disciples? So long as the idol of career, whether it be professionalized ministry or traditional vocation, remains intact, our ability to call people to make disciples will be limited. You know, there is value in our work, yes. It's worship. It provides for our family, families. It helps us provide for our communities. It adds value to the world. But our first call is to make disciples. So as a church, we started to confront the idols of consumerism, careerism, comfort, upward mobility, and say, what if we started to structure our lives to fulfill the Great Commission? That's the priesthood of all believers. The second value that started to govern the way that we think as a church is this principle that the church is a missional family. If the primary call of the church is to be faithful in making disciples, then it means that we need to be really, really clear on what it means to be the church. Collectively. Like, if disciples make disciples, what does that mean when those disciples start to band together and find each other and be friends? And Well, the scriptures are very clear that the church is called to be a family. You see, the invitation to church as family is far more beautiful than just the creation of a community group that has strong affinity for one another. In my early years of church leadership, I was really hesitant to embrace uh, the idea of church as a family because I was concerned that it would make our church feel sort of like a big social clique or kind of narcissistic and it would be insular and only concerned about ourselves. I was concerned when I looked at this idea of church as family that it would result in us losing sight of mission and the call to make disciples that we'd become self-obsessed. I mean, what if these hundreds of students we had started to love each other a lot? Like, that's kind of dangerous. <laughs> now, I think my, my own bent is I'm so mission-minded that I probably needed to have some more humility and the Lord needed to do some work in it. But I came to realize that the issue was not that the church as a family was a threat to mission. We came to see that the church as a family was actually a necessary and essential component of the church fulfilling its mission. You see, much of my hesitancy about this idea of church as family was rooted in the fact that our Western families tend to be a reflection of our hyper-individualistic culture. So our culture is very individualistic. But, and as a result, our families tend to be kind of a reflection of that. But the New Testament world, the world of the early church, the world that uh, the church was formed in was not an individualistic world, it was a communal world. Where family was not an insular idea, but family was a very broad, inviting, open idea. The picture of family painted in the New Testament is a product of strong community ties, not strong individualistic ideas. 
And so what we came to see was that there was two forces at play in the church. The church has a force for togetherness, the bonding together. And the church also has a force for sentness, to go to new places and make new disciples. In the same way that a biological family has a force that binds it together deeply. But if you're raising children and your children never leave your house, probably that's not very successful if they're always dependent on you. Part of successful child rearing in a biblical mode is to raise children up that we can send them out to go start new families. There's a force for togetherness and a force for sentness in the biological family and so too in the church. And when we start to look in the New Testament, we discover that the primary language used to describe the relationships in the church is family, specifically the language of brothers and sisters. The books of Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, 1 and 2 Peter, James, 1, 2 and 3 John, and Revelation all use that language. You know, the idea that the church is a family is a salient idea in a world where government restrictions, pandemic-related or not, have stressed the church. If the church's call to make disciples and to be a family is central, I think the church collectively probably would have navigated through, and I mean the broad Western church, the challenges of COVID much more effectively. If we're gonna make disciples, we've got to figure out what it means to be family together. The bonding of disciples together into the church requires that they discover that they are loved by their brothers and sisters. My friend Prabir um, grew up in a Sikh family and he came to know Jesus uh, through our church as well. And when he gave his life to Jesus, he was excommunicated from his family. And I can remember sitting down with him when he was making the decision of whether or not to get baptized, he had to make the decision of, the decision wasn't, you know, do I stand up in front of people and give my testimony that's scary? The decision was, do I choose excommunication from my own biological family? That's here in Canada, like that's not a foreign story. The reason why he was able to make that decision was not just that he loved Jesus, but that we as a church sat across the table from him and said, when you are excommunicated, we will receive you. My home, the bed upstairs is yours for as long as you need it, anytime you need it. Today, Prabir now owns a, owns a house with some leaders in our church. And that home is an open home for discipleship. 
and for people to discover that when they choose Jesus and they are rejected by the world, there will be a family there to love them. You see, the call to follow Jesus is not just about a transformation of thoughts and beliefs and actions. It has to rewire our identity. And so often we think about the following of Jesus as rewiring our identity as individuals. But the call to follow Jesus isn't just rewiring our identity as individuals. It's rewiring our identity as we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in the church. Too often our relationships in the church are contractual, defined by terms like I'll be part of this thing so long as it's mutually beneficial, so long as it meets my needs, so long as I'm fed, so long as I like the preaching and the... But if we're all ministers and we're all brothers and sisters that rewires how we relate to one another, you take that message onto a university campus and it is like fresh air to a generation that has been told the world should revolve around them. And we're saying, actually, Jesus has made you to belong in a family and to live on mission. And so in our church, our leaders' homes are open. Our finances even, we share resources. And our primary relationship is familial, not organizational or contractual. In short, if we're going to make disciples, the what we see in Acts chapter 2 is actually possible and normative. I want to read it for you. If we can get it up on the screen. Acts chapter 2. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I don't think that that verse is a picture of a utopian world that we could never experience as Christians. I also don't think it's intended to be a passage that we strive towards and try to achieve. This passage was a result of the Holy Spirit moving in the church as they stepped out boldly to make disciples. When we take the Great Commission seriously and we embrace the call to make disciples and we put Jesus as the central, Jesus' mission as the central objective of the church, and we allow the Holy Spirit to start to shape us, I think Acts chapter 2 is what churches will start to look like. Wouldn't that be beautiful that, they ate their, that we would eat our food in church with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people? And every day, the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. It's my prayer for Westside Church today. That every day the Lord would add to the number of people who are discovering His goodness and His grace. As each of you take up the call.
to make disciples, to live as family. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this church. I thank you that there's brothers and sisters here together. And brothers and sisters that I haven't even personally met yet, but because of your grace, Jesus, you have bound us together. And Lord, I pray that even this afternoon, as this family shares a meal together, they would praise you with glad and sincere hearts and that the fruit that we would see in this church, Jesus, is people being saved, people coming to know your grace and your goodness, receiving you as Lord. Amen.